Welcome to Professor Charlene Hespiber's podcast series. Today's interview is the first in a special series of eight podcasts about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, based on her study of women's experiences with genetic testing and medical decision-making for breast and ovarian cancer. She starts by explaining how her own family's experiences of dealing with breast cancer motivated her to write the book. I developed breast cancer myself over 10 years ago. I dealt with it pretty quickly and it was not something that was on my mind a lot. However, several years later, my youngest sister developed breast cancer that was pretty invasive and at the time had just gotten married, had moved down to Virginia to form a new life together and he died suddenly of a heart attack next to her. He was 48 at the time. My sister was around the same age as he was. And I think because of that traumatic event, her cancer reappeared. She did not really pay too much attention to it, given the situation. By the time she noticed it was serious, it was too late. She had invasive breast cancer. She had stage four and died two years after that. She died at home with her friends and her family in Virginia. That, for me, really was quite a traumatic event. Shortly thereafter, I developed breast cancer again. And my older sister developed breast cancer. My sister took it very personally. She thought that she was going to die, just like her youngest sister. She was terrified, as many women are, because very often, especially in American society, you equate, if you do have a positive diagnosis, as a death sentence. It's really scary. So there we were thinking, wow, this is raining down on our family. Part of me didn't really want to deal with the public part of, you know, telling people. So I just basically took care of my situation. I was treated successfully, and so was my sister. You were encouraged to get tested for the BRCA1 and 2 genetic mutations, which indicate a high risk of breast, ovarian, and other cancers, not just for the individual, but for the whole family. So talk us through that experience, how you felt about the suggestion you might have this gene, the implications of that, and what actually happened and how you felt about it afterwards? Well, it was quite a shock for me to sift through all the implications going online, as many women in my situation would do, trying to figure out what is the BRCA mutation and what were its implications, how quickly could we get the test. The whole issue is it's hereditary, so if I do have the gene, I could pass it on to my children. It was a very difficult crossroads in my life. My sister and I decided to get tested together at the Dana-Farber Cancer Center here in Boston, and our results came back. We had to wait. It was a kind of waiting and watching. And this notion of waiting for cancer to come came to me. We were both negative for the BRCA mutation, which of course was a relief to all of us. However, I began to read the detailed genetics report about my test result. And I was a bit taken aback because while I was tested negative, it said for that money, we tested you for what we had, the mutations we normally test for, but there could be other mutations that we have not tested for. And then I remember thinking, are you kidding? Giving me in one hand positive results, uh, positive meaning happy results, 
And on the other hand, you're telling me, wait a minute, uh, for $650 more, we can screen you for another range of mutations. And then I got to thinking, what is this about? I wanted to know more about what was going on with Myriad Corporation and it's holding all of this genetic information that can only go to one place. The tests were extremely expensive. And what does it all mean? I need to look into this. I had a negative result and my sister, of course, was told, you're fine. And was I going to then bring this up to her saying, well, you know, Georgia, we didn't get tested for the full spectrum. Yes, your sister's fears and her reaction affected you really quite deeply, didn't they? What was your response to that? Well, my response was to try to be calm. Given my science background, I dealt with this whole issue very rationally. I started reading about genetic testing when it began, false positives, false negatives on tests, and just the hold that Myriad Corporation in Utah had on these test results and how a positive result was garnered. How did they know this was positive and that was negative? Whose genes were my genes being compared? To. And then I realized whatever genes they had in their data bank were the genes that, that they had available. And they used kind of a spectrum of folks whose genes they had tested and identified various mutations along these chromosomes called BRCA1 and BRCA2. So, you know, I began to think, there's more here. What if I wanted to get, for example, a second opinion? Well, I couldn't go anyplace else. I had to go back to Myriad. So there was no check and balance on the quality of their testing, which disturbed me. At that point, I started looking into the Myriad Corporation's inner workings and found they were trying to corner a market on the test globally, with some nations really being very negative about it because they didn't like the expense, the monopoly. And, you know, this was a corporation that wanted to make lots of money on testing women's genes and had a profound testing campaign that was based on fear. So was this the point, would you say, at which, if you like, your personal experiences and your professional interests sort of started becoming intertwined, as it were? Because you say in the book that the, you know, the study you go on to undertake found you. Was this the point at which it found you? I think so. The delving deeper into the inner workings of genetic testing, finding out, for example, that the FDA here really did not regulate this industry at all. There was no FDA regulation on what people could say about what these tests would do for you. There was no quality assurance in the testing process. That there would be oversight. So it was sort of a booming business with little regulation. And it's still not a highly regulated industry even today. This, again, caught my interest. And it was also when my sister died, I wanted to give back somehow. This came together for me. I decided you know, to honor my sister, to honor these women who have gone through so much with testing and so on, that to really start looking at just the whole experience of testing, given my sister was so terrified of it, where did this terror come from? Why were women equating being positive with dying? It seemed to me the gap between being tested positive and a diagnosis was getting smaller and smaller. And so what was going on in our culture? So I began to be asking sociological questions about the testing industry. So when you started to dig deeper and, and look around, what were the things that struck you most? It was, for the most part, devoid of women's experiences. Women's voices were absent. 
the medical profession assumed that once women were tested, they would do what they were told. They would rationally take the odds that they were given and uh, they'd go through the protocol and everything would be fine. As I dug deeper, I started reading women's accounts that medical professions uh, had on how women understood their risks. So they go to a Gen X counselor. They they're, say they're BRCA positive. They sit down and the Gen X counselor talks with them about their odds for getting cancer. And they say something like, oh, 80% over your lifetime. And I'm, I'm thinking, here's this woman. She just realized she's BRCA positive. <laughs> she's sitting down. And what's she thinking? What's going on in her life? One of the things was that women overestimate their risk. For example, you're told 80% over the course of your lifetime. It turns out that when they queried women about how much they understood about what that meant, they had trouble deciphering that information. First of all, as one woman said to me later on in an interview, I was so numb, I didn't hear anything anyone was saying to me at that time. I was just in a daze. Thank God my husband wrote down exactly what somebody said, because at that point, I had no clue. And I went home, and it's then that I really started wanting to ask questions, but it was over. So I guess I'm going to either get surgery or die. The medical profession assumed women understood, assumed they would do what they were told, and really asked very little about what women were feeling or experiencing or needing. Women were absent, for the most part, in lots of literature on BRCA testing and the being positive for the BRCA mutations. Their voices were absent. You talk in the book about your theoretical lens as being a feminist standpoint approach. I wonder if you can explain what you mean by that and why that was for you so integral to your study that you went on to carry out. A feminist standpoint is really taking women where they are in their lives. What I wanted to do is place women at the center of my understanding of the lived experience of BRCA, trying to privilege as much as I could of their voices by listening and understanding. So my goal was to ask women what they thought. What was it about their experience that they could articulate for me? And my role really was one of listening because a researcher that employs this kind of feminist standpoint lens says, I want to understand women's lives. I want, as a researcher, to initiate my research from their lives, be aware of the importance of not having an agenda when I go into this project. My goal is to just ask as few questions as possible, but starting out as I do with the women I've interviewed, tell me what brought you to be tested for your BRCA mutation. That brings us very nicely onto the question of who you talk to and how you went about you know, setting up this whole study and carrying it out. The question is, how do I reach BRCA-positive women? This is a, a subjugated sample to begin with, and given that women's voices are subjugated, I've got to find these women. So it seemed to me that one good way to do this would be to use the internet, to go to websites, for example, that I knew existed for women who were BRCA-positive. One of these very important websites in the U.S. and worldwide now is called FORCE, Facing Our Risk of Cancer Empowered. I wrote to the person who oversees the site and said, would it be possible for me to post information about my research study on your site? I started to reach women that way, asking them to fill out 
an online survey or asking them if they would be interested in talking with me, one or both of those things. It was amazing, the response that that I got. Women started coming my way. I started with the women that asked for me to interview them. And I began to get friends of friends telling other friends about my situation. Lots of these women that I talk with are in groups that of other BRCA positive women. So I then was able to also get information about other websites where women might go to find information about being BRCA positive, information on what to do, what kind of surgery if they wanted to have surgery, what kind of surgery to have. It would be explained to them. They could ask questions. They could get support. So I started with one site and it, it grew. We call it a kind of snowball sample. You mentioned earlier that the key thing about your approach to talking to these women was that you wanted to listen to them. And I know that's very, very important to you. But I wonder how much your own experience influenced those discussions or what role they played at all. It's important to know your own set of values before you enter into a study. What are your biases? It's embracing your biases, knowing your biases that makes you more objective. So going in there and having done studies before where I've practiced reflexivity, writing down all the potential things, all my biases, all the questions I was assuming or things that I felt about X, Y, and Z around this issue, being upset about my own situation with my family and really going out of my way to embrace all of those things. I never assumed, for example, if someone said, my sister died of breast cancer at a young age, I wouldn't say, I know exactly what you mean. I had a sister too. I don't presume to know anything about what you mean, even though I may have had a sister who died of breast cancer. There is no way that I'm going to assume that you've had the same experience as I do. When a participant would say to me, Charlene, you know what I mean? And while I'd love to agree with her, I would say, I'm not really sure what you mean. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? I don't interject my attitudes and values. I'm guessing at times that must have been tough, though. At times during these interviews, women would reveal their story that maybe sometimes they felt they overshared with me. So I felt almost obligated to say, it's not about me. It's about you. I'm bearing witness to a woman's story. I strive to be as authentic as I can and tell them, I really want to hear your story. That's my role here. Now, I know you had a bit of a tough time, Charlene, when you thought you you might not be able to carry on with this study. And I wonder how much that was to do with, in some cases, very distressing stories you might have been listening to over and over and over again sometimes, but also about, if you like, reining in your own experiences and keeping those under control. I, I wonder whether it was a combination of both of those things that made you actually have to take a bit of time out. A wonderful participant said to me, you told me a little bit about your situation. She she said, I just want to make sure, are you okay interviewing us? How do you feel about what's happened with your sister? I mean, does that bother you at all? And I said to her, thank you so much for asking me that question. But from my perspective, I think it really helps me better identify a little bit more with women's situation. The next interview I had was a woman who lost her sister to breast cancer. During that interview, I could feel my 
my body shaking. I could feel when she was talking about her sister and what she went through. Her sister had died out of a very aggressive tumor. I began to shut down. And while I got through the interview, I felt that I was re-experiencing my sister's death. I didn't see it coming. And so I felt it wasn't fair to my participants that I continue if I couldn't intently listen to them. So professionally, it meant you had to put the brakes on what was for you a very important piece of work. But personally, it it had some positive effects. Is is that fair? It meant facing my own trauma of having had cancer. At that point, I kept my diagnosis very, very, what can I say? I was very quiet about it and told no one in my workplace. I went on with my life. Cancer was not life-threatening. I could not, you know, I could do my radiation and come back and do my job. I would lay down in my office for an hour. Nobody knew except my family. That bothered me. It bothered me a lot. So having taken the lid off this whole thing by listening, I became able to deal with my own coping with cancer, having had cancer, the threat of it coming back. Somehow or other, I made peace with this. My biggest concern was, do I come out in my book about this? So I say a little bit about my family in the beginning of the book, and at the end, I talk a little bit more. I was terrified to do so, but having done it, it's sort of like dealing with the demon. It's an empowering thing to do. And obviously, having gone through that period of time, you were able, if you like, to get back on the horse, complete your study, write the book. In some future podcasts, we're going to be looking in a lot more depth at what those women you interviewed had to say and what you discovered about the practice and the industry surrounding this type of type of testing. But I wonder whether, just, just to finish this particular podcast, whether you'd like to reflect on both for you, but more broadly as well, what you, what you think the book has achieved. What the book has achieved is to privilege a voice in this whole medical issue that has been so subjugated. For us, for the medical profession, for genetics counselors, a healthcare workers to understand that women don't make decisions the way the rational model of medical model says they make in terms of deciding what to do after they have a positive diagnosis. Women take many different journeys. There's no one size route to go. Women need to be able to have control over their own decision making. It's important for physicians and others in the healthcare field to understand this. Women will tell you what they need if you listen. And that's something the medical profession in general has a hard time doing. Charlene Hess-Biber was talking to me, Chris Garrington, about her book, Waiting for Cancer to Come, which is published by the University of Michigan Press. In our next podcast, we'll talk about the growth of the genetic testing industry, how it's marketed and advertised, concerns about regulation and the impact of all this on the women caught up in it. This series is produced by Research Podcasts.